Well, good morning, Whitewater. Oh, you guys are pretty awake, at least half of you, that's good. So good to be here. We're in the book of Philippians. We're really looking at how to have joy through all things, the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows of life, and how Jesus Christ makes a huge difference in all of that. Um, I want you to know if you're new here, we're so glad that you're here. And uh, Whitewater is a place you really can belong before you believe and as you learn what belief even is. And our goal is to help every person uh, that walks through these doors to take the next step in their, uh, their, their life their, and hopefully their flourishing life with God. Now, um, last week uh, we started chapter two of Philippians and it's a really powerful passage that helps us understand the community that Jesus wants us to have. And one of the things we talked about is um, being a Jesus-centered community. A lot of communities can be centered on all kinds of things. They can be centered on food, which isn't that bad. And when you're centered on Jesus, the cool thing about that is he loved to feast. And so uh, eating is also part of that. But um, some churches and some communities can be focused on control, always trying to you know, control things, uh, tradition. We've only always done it this way before. We don't do it this way. Uh, centered on money, like how much will it cost rather than how much will it reach and how, much will it ble- or how many will it bless. And for us, we wanna be a Jesus-centered community. And we talked about um, two ways to make a salad. One, where all the pieces are segregated and separate, and a lot of churches can kind of organize that way and then kind of douse and bless all the segregation and having uh, no differences and not being willing to meet with other people who think differently or you might even disagree with and kind of like dousing that and anointing it with a form of Jesus. Or the godly biblical way that Paul teaches us to make a salad is to mix the salad and have people from different backgrounds, different even even disagreeing points of view that gather together. And we said, for that to work though, we have to be centered on Jesus. Unity equals liberty plus limits plus love. Do you guys remember that? I just wanna refresh us, because I think it's so essential in our divided world where everyone's running, wanting to run to their corner and throw rocks at the other person who, who disagrees with them and, and, and kind of um, ostracize people. The church has an opportunity. Our church here in uh, 2020 in uh, Puyallup and in Pierce County, we have an opportunity to demonstrate unity that the world isn't used to seeing. And that means that we have to be unified around the essentials. For us, that's Jesus and, and the, his teachings and his ethics and his way of doing life and what he taught. And Jesus is the, one of the, the quintessentials of our faith. So unity around the essentials, liberty around the non-essentials, meaning like we can let people who disagree with us on things that we might get heated about or we might even defend, but it's not an essential belief. We can disagree. We can give liberty to other people. We can be humble. We can learn from people from a different perspective without agreeing with them. And when we disagree, it doesn't mean we have to divide. And then we also get, we have limits sometimes around things that are destructive toward our essentials. The things that we hold in, if someone really, really just wants to teach that Jesus doesn't matter and, and uh, was, is teaching kind of an anti-gospel against Jesus, there probably wouldn't be in leadership here. And we might put limits around that. If someone uh, has really toxic behavior, like we might encourage limits or, or sometimes we even just limit ourselves so that other people can grow. I try not to do all my daughter's math homework for her because I want to get it done faster. I want her to learn how to do math 
And so we limit ourselves. So limiting is a, is a really essential part of having a community of unity. And then the last most essential ingredient is love. Unity equals liberty plus limits plus love. And Jesus demonstrates love. And he came as the king servant, humbled himself and served his enemies, loved his enemies, loved people who thought entirely different than he did. And he found ways of serving them. And if we are a community that humbly submits to serving one another and try to figure out how can I serve that per- person who thinks that thing or does that thing I can't even stand, We will be a community of uncommon unity. Amen? So that's what we covered last week. This week, we're going to be finishing chapter two. And my hope is that we'll we'll see um, a side of Paul that can often be missed. Paul is the author of Philippians. He's writing to this uh, Philippian church. It's, It's basically a church in this city called Philippi in northern Greece. He's in prison because he's been preaching the gospel and that his gospel has been changing so many lives. The Roman government has become threatened by it. So they throw him into chains, throw him into jail, and he's writing. And here's the thing. In this part of the chapter two, we see a window into Paul's heart. And my hope is that we can see the father heart of Paul. That he is a spiritual father and he deeply loves this church. Sound good? So you can turn to chapter two, verse 12 in your Bibles. You can follow along on the screen behind me. And, um, and in case, you know, I use different uh, translations because I think we're so lucky in America that we have all these translations. People like to argue about all the translations. I like to celebrate that we're lucky enough to have multiple translations of the, of the Bible in English. Some countries don't even have, uh, they have one, if any. And so I'm grateful to be able to do that. So uh, here we go. In verse 12, it says this. Therefore, my loved ones, just as you always obey me, not, not just when I am present, but now even more while I'm away. Um, I want to stop there just for a moment and, and acknowledge this is the, the, the spirit of, of spiritual fatherhood that, that's, that Paul has for this church. This is his heart, and I, I think it's so important to know that he loves communicating with them. He sends this letter to communicate to his loved ones, he calls them, that you would listen to me or obey me, not just when I'm present, but now even more when I'm gone. How many of you guys are parents or um, father figures, mother figures, aunts, uncles, a few of us? Any of you guys ever had to be in charge of some kids? Um... It, when you're a, a parent or a parent figure, it's so important to communicate, to, to have time together. And the point of being a parent and being with your kid, I think one of the biggest purposes is to help them to mature so that when you are not there, they're able to make wise decisions, to live life on their own two feet. They're able to live within their purposes and their passions, and they're able to move forward in life. It doesn't give a parent more joy than when they see their son or daughter beginning to flourish. Can I get an amen? I mean, back there, I've got my kids back there right now, and I, I'm so excited in, in their growth. Um, Wes, when he um, first started Walking, I, we put him on. We actually put him on his two feet. When he started standing, pretty much the day he started standing was the day he started running. 
And he hasn't stopped running since. He'll run over here. He'll run over there. I mean, he just runs everywhere. And he's getting fast. He can keep up with his seven-year-old sister, Novella. And he's two and a half. And he's just boom, He's got these little legs. Just boom, boom. And you just watch him. It gets me tired just watching him go. He, he's learning to, to run. And that's what God wants for us. And in this passage, Paul has a heart to help the, the Philippian church even when he's not there and especially when he's not present, to run in their faith, to run in their faith. Um, Obey me, not just when I'm present, or listen to me, not just when I'm present, but now even more while I'm away. My daughter and I um, uh, got to experience a new level of communication. Um, My my, uh, in-laws, her grandparents, my in-laws bought her a gift for her birthday. She just turned seven. And they bought her walkie-talkies. And um, she hasn't stopped walking and talking with them since. She's just always on them. We went on vacation. After, right, basically, the day she got these walkie-talkies, went out to the beach. We were going in the cabin. And my daughter's on them. Once they got the battery, she's like, Dad, how are you? Over. And I'm like, right next to her, I'm fine, Novella. Over. Good. Just checking. Over. And we're, you know, get out of the car, we start walking in. Dad, I'm glad we're at the cabin. Over. Me too. Over. It's we're walking to the cabin. We go in there. Everything's like, Dad, get your walkie. Where's your walkie-talkie I gave you? It's in the room. That's unacceptable. I don't even have it. Over. You know, this is what it's like. I remember uh, we were hanging out and she's like, Dad, what are you doing right now? Over. I'm like, I'm sitting on the couch next to your mom and you. Over. And she's like, go upstairs so we can, we can practice with the walkie-talkies. Over. I said, no, why don't you go upstairs? Over. No, it's scary up there. Over. And I, Bring your brother up there with you. Over. Oh, that's a good idea. Over. And, just, and she runs upstairs. And all of a sudden, beep, she beeps me and she goes, dad, we're upstairs. What should we do? Over. And I'm like, could you check... Um, they're in the living room. I saw a, a figure of someone that kind of scared me. Could you go and check and see if that's still there? Over. It was totally evil. I shouldn't have done this. Over. She's so mad. I'm like, I'm just kidding. She's like, that was mean. Over. Sent him back upstairs. Okay, Dad. Um, we're back up here. Me and Wes are up here. Um, what should we do now? I said, I shouldn't have done this. I said, Grandpa's worried there's a possum in one of the rooms, the bedrooms. Could you check that? My son, yeah, I hear him coming down. My wife's mad at me. <laughs> at night, though, we, we had these, and uh, Novella's like, Dad, it's time to go to bed. I'm going to go to sleep. I love you. Over. And I said, hey, I love you. We'll talk in the morning. Over. Bye. Over. And <laughs> But there's something about growing together, communicating together, isn't there? That we're designed for relationship with each other, we're di- designed for a relationship with God, and that's what prayer is. And Paul has sent a letter of communication to the people, his walkie-talkie. And I, I want us to focus on verse 12 and 13, and I, man, I'm gonna try to do this in five minutes. And I wanna speak for five minutes to people who have been Christians for a while. Now, if you're not a Christian, you're exploring faith, you're in the right place, I think you'll appreciate this talk. I think this is an important one for us who have been in faith for a while. Um, but it's about grace. And it's about how Christians 
can have an unhealthy understanding of grace. Check this out. Here's what Paul writes. He says, um, obey me or listen to me, not just when I'm present, but now even more while I'm away. Carry out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Some, some translations say, work out your own salvation. Now, for many Christians, they'll read this, but that doesn't make sense. You can't earn or work for your salvation. And there's a term that's called like uh, working for, for grace or works for salvation. And the Bible teaches us that we can't earn something that's a free gift, right? And so there's a lot of debate where people get really uptight and I call them kind of like grace police. And uh, what can happen in churches is that people become grace police and they, and they kind of have this idea that grace means that you just kind of, you, like you do nothing and grace is, is God's forgiveness. That's what it is. It's only God's forgiveness and that can't be earned and so you can't, you can't, can't earn it. And I, I want to agree, like grace cannot be earned, but we can still have a, a misunderstanding and a, an unhealthy understanding of grace. Because uh, when people read this, they're like, well, it can't possibly mean be working on your salvation. You can't earn being saved. Well, yes, he is saying work on your salvation. That's what Paul is saying, carry it out. And there's two elements I wanna emphasize. The first one is carrying out your salvation is a father teaching his children, his spiritual kids in uh, the church of Philippi. He's saying, while I'm not there, I want you to learn to walk in faith with God yourselves. The whole background to this entire passage is the Exodus story, which is the story of Israel, God's people being freed from Egypt, some of you guys might know this story, being freed from Egypt, freed from Pharaoh and slavery, and freed for something, not just from something. When you're freed, you are freed from something. They were freed from slavery, but if they'd gone from slavery to some other kind of slavery, that would have been lame, right? So they were freed from slavery to walk with God and to worship God into a life of freedom with God. You tracking? Now, Paul is trying to teach that your faith, like can't, you can't live your faith vicariously through me. I wanna talk to some Christians today, you need, to, you need to know, even if your grandma's amazing and your grandpa's amazing, they got incredible faith, their faith doesn't like give your faith uh, credits to God. It's not like you're building up the bank account through them. So you can't, your parents and your grandparents and your friend who's amazing, has amazing prayer life and goes to church all the time and they're like super amazing. Like their, their faith is not your faith. You don't get credit for their faith. You, have, you, you need to have your own faith. Paul's saying that, carry out your own faith. The other element that he's, that he's talking about here is I think that's really important is to understand what salvation or what grace is. So Dallas Willard, a guy I think is really, really brilliant writer, he, he says this. Um, let's read this together. Um, this is about grace. Go ahead and throw that up there. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. It, grace is not opposed to effort, to working, to do. It's not opposed to that. Many times when people think, well, it's only a free gift, so you can't work for it, so you should do nothing. Grace isn't opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning, and earning is an attitude. Write that on your notes. Earning is an attitude. And here's where this is important. Um, 
A wrong understanding of grace, I'm jumping a, a little bit ahead in the note, but I think it's important. A wrong understanding of grace and salvation leads to passive bystanders, people who are just sitting in the lazy chair of grace, just watching people, and they become grace hunters. If anybody's gonna do anything for God around here, it needs to go through me. And I need to make sure that you really understand that you don't deserve it, you can't earn it, and you shouldn't really be doing what you're doing because it's kind of like you're, you're doing too much for God. Imagine coming up to Jesus and saying, Jesus, you know all that healing you've been doing, all that ministry you've been doing, I'm really concerned you're trying to work your way to God. Um, so let's have you kind of calm that down. Hey, Paul, all that church planting you're doing and all that Bible writing you're doing, I need you to, I need you to calm down a little bit because it, it, it could really be you trying to work your way to God. And I understand there can be a concern where people can have an attitude like where they're trying to you know, earn something, but here's the problem. People who become grace hunters and other people are demonstrating an immaturity in faith. They're demonstrating that they have a legalistic understanding of grace. And here's how. Uh, often they'll say, if you just believe the right doctrinal theological th truths about grace, and about God, and about salvation, if you just acknowledge and confess these things are true, you're good. Here's the problem with that. If you say that you're right with God because you agree with these true statements, that's like saying to somebody, or that's like someone saying to me, George, you'll be made right with your wife, Sarah, if you just believe these true things about her. She's blonde, she's five foot seven, She's got a great smile. She makes amazing pie. She's an incredible mom. These are all true things. If I believe those true things about my wife, does that make my relationship right with her? Is your, is, are you gonna be made right with my wife if you just believe those true things about her? She's blonde. She has a great smile and on and on. That has nothing to do with your relationship with her. That's where people really, really in the Christian church have made a huge, huge error in understanding of grace and a relationship with God. You are not made right with Sarah by believing the right things about her. You are made right with Sarah or in a right relationship by having a relationship with Sarah, by getting to know her, getting to like know what she likes. That's how, you're, that's how you have, are made right with somebody is by having a relationship with, and with God the, in James, the book of James teaches us that even demons believe the doctrines about grace. They know that God's good. They know that God's Trinity, God, Father, Son, Spirit. They, but they're not, they're not saved. They're not in salvation. They're not in connection with God. They're not walking with him. And so if we don't understand that how we relate to God actually teaches us more about what we believe about God, we are fooling ourselves and we become grace hunters, telling other people that they don't understand grace right when we don't understand grace right. Are you tracking? So what is grace? I think Dallas Willard really nails it again. He says this, Grace is God acting in our lives to do things we can't do on our own. Think about the children of Israel walking from 
slavery into freedom, into the desert, and into a life with God. God walking with them every step of the way. When they didn't have the vision, God gave them the vision. When they didn't have the leader to do it, God gave them the leader, Moses. When they didn't have the ability to cross the Red Sea, God parted the Red Sea. That's grace. Their lack of ability, God, God giving them the ability, that's grace. His power was grace. The vision was grace. Um, um, the, the lack of knowledge that they, that they had. They didn't have the knowledge. God giving that to them, that's grace. Everything that God has given you and me in our lives to be and to do and to think what we could not think or do or be on our own, that is grace. The breath in your lungs is grace. And when we limit grace to forgiveness, we misunderstand grace. We've, we've cheapened it. We've reduced it. Grace is forgiveness, but it's so much more. Grace is fuel for living. It's fuel for living the kingdom life with Jesus. And uh, this, that when we get grace right, or when we have a better understanding, and I'm not even saying I fully understand. It's like saying I fully understand God. I understand it enough to know that like, I can't just confess the right truths and, and, and not know God and think that I'm right with him. I have to know God, begin to walk with God, love God. The, the great commandment doesn't say um, um, believe the right truths about God and believe the right truths about your neighbor. What does it say? Love God with everything you have and love your neighbor. Uh, I love this quote just about having a good understanding of grace. A good understanding of grace and salvation leads to active participants in God's eternal life here and now. So we're not waiting for heaven. We're not just saved and we've got our get out of hell free card and, and we just kind of like are waiting around till God kind of beams us up. And Jesus taught this new life of walking with God, just like Israel walking in the desert with God, worshiping him, knowing him, uh, knowing what he loves and what he doesn't love. And that is what Paul is getting at. That's what he wants for us in this text. And I love how in verse 13, again, he hits this idea of grace. He nails it. He says in verse 13, God is the one who enables you both to want and to actually live out his good purposes. You want a biblical definition of grace? There it is, baby. Underline that thing. That is grace. Do everything without grumbling and arguing because the children of Israel, when they were with God, what did they do? When he parted the seas, like that's so amazing. They get on the other side and they're like, God, we don't have enough meat. Where's our meat, God? And, and we need something new and shiny. And like uh, sometimes Christians who, th who think they're being deep are displaying their immaturity when they always need to know like the Greek word, but they don't know how to practice what the Greek word is telling them to do. Are you with me? That's deep. That's deep. My five minutes is up. I'm gonna talk to everybody in the room now. And what I wanna talk to you guys about is how do we begin to apply, apply the wisdom of God, the relationship with God? How do we begin to let um, relationship drive everything? So here we go. And if we continue in verse 14, do everything without grumbling and arguing. You, let me just ask this question. Do any of you guys with kids or aunts and uncles, which is better to ha hear kids in the back room arguing with each other or completely silent? <laughs> that silence means like, 
They're planning something, it ain't good, man. Something evil this way comes. So people can grumble in their hearts. Um, He's talking about our attitude. In verse 15, so that you may be blameless and pure, innocent children of God. Remember, coming again to that relational aspect, innocent children of God, that God is our Father and wants to walk with us and help us grow and stand on our own two feet and walk on our own two feet and run on our own two feet. That's what God longs for and he wants us to be innocent children surrounded by a world and by people who are crooked and corrupt with organizations that are crooked and corrupt and politicians that have, are, and sometimes are crooked and corrupt. How many of you guys have noticed that we live in a world that has darkness? But he says, among these people you will what? Shine like stars in the world because you hold on to the word of life. And the word of life you know, um, it, it really is this idea of God's word of life. The Torah we translate as law is not translated well when we say it's just law. The Torah is the Old Testament. The better translation is a father's instruction for his children. So the Bible, uh, even the words of Jesus, these are words of life. And when we, if we look at the words of the Bible and we look at the words of Jesus as, as, as like dogmas and, and tr- just truths or boundaries of who's in or who's out, it's, it gives death. It, it's not life-giving. But if we look at, the, at God's word as something that's an, a spring of life that's trying to help us become who we're born to be, then all of a sudden it takes on totally new meaning. All of a sudden it becomes the Father's words of life for us. And are we listening to them or are we ignoring them? And Paul goes on to say, this will allow me to say on the day of Christ that I haven't run for nothing or worked for nothing. And he's saying as a spiritual father, I don't wanna look at, at your lives and at the churches we've planted and the families that we have as brothers and sisters and have and have." and have gone to prison for you, all to have it be worthless and futile. Live a life that makes me proud. You don't have to be perfect. He's like, I'm not perfect. I, I was the enemy of Christ. If you know Paul's story, he threw people, Christians in prison. He, he, he knows about redemption. He knows about imperfection. But what he's saying is learn to walk on your own two feet. Do me proud. I, I, I want this to be worthwhile. I don't want to run this race for nothing. And fathers long for their kids to succeed. Mothers, spiritual mothers, don't we? Fathers and mothers, we long to see our kids succeed. Amen? I want my kids to succeed. And I want this church to succeed. I want you to walk in faith. But even if I'm poured out like a drink offering upon the altar of service for your faith, I am glad. He says, even if I'm poured out, underline that, that line, if I'm poured out on the altar of service for your faith, I am glad. I'm glad with you all. You should be glad about this in the same way. Be glad with me. He's saying, I'm, these chains aren't embarrassing to me. They're my glory. Because these chains, because this jail cell that I am, it's saying that the gospel that has been passed on through me is a dangerous gospel to a violent world and to a controlling world. But it's, it means freedom for you. And my chains mean your freedom in the gospel. And I'm so glad. If, I can, if my being in chains sets you free to know Jesus, I can't think of anything better. Isn't that a good spiritual father? Spiritual mothers, this is how they think. So I want us to look at what do we look for in 
mentors and models of the gospel. I think as a practical thing, as we kind of close this sermon and close this section, in verse 19, Paul starts talking about what models or examples of the gospel can look like in two characters, Timothy and Epaphroditus, two guys. Now, if you had the choice between the name Timothy and Epaphroditus, which would you choose? <laughs> I was reading this and I was like, man, poor Epaphroditus. That sounds like a disease, Epaphroditus. Maybe that's why you're sick in your passage. That's a bummer. So in verse 19, it says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to see you soon so that I may be encouraged by, by hearing about you. He wants to hear about them. Now, verse 20, underline this. I have no one like him. It's saying he's a good example. He is a person who genuinely cares about your well-being. All the others put their own business ahead of Jesus Christ's business, but he cares about, genuinely cares about your well-being. Underline that. You know his character, he says in verse 22. You know his character. Where the world looks at all the outward things in leaders. They look for all the outward things in people who have value and get lifted up. But rarely do we first look to the heart. And um, it's interesting to me that Paul, I mean, he, if he's like trying to lift up a leader, you know, um, you'd think like he would say, man, this guy is an incredible teacher and preacher. He will blow your socks off. He will make you laugh. He will make it so fun. You're just gonna love, I mean, he is amazing. Or about like um, his leadership uh, charisma. This guy is charismatic. Like people love him. You will love him. He's, he's so funny and he will, he's just, he's great. You, you, can't, you can't resist being around this person. He doesn't go into any of those typical leadership skills. I'm not saying those are unimportant but they're not the most important thing. He, isn't, he doesn't talk about any of those things, his sense of style, how great an addresser he is. What he talks about is here is an example, a person who genuinely cares about your well-being. All the other leaders that you're looking toward, that he, he's, he's identifying an issue they have. You're identifying the wrong leaders because you're looking for the wrong things. They're serving themselves rather than the business of Christ. And here is a person, he might not have the charisma or he might not have whatever you're looking for, but he's here with me while I'm in chains. He's serving the gospel and this person genuinely cares about your life flourishing in Christ. Man, that's, that's a lesson for me. I try to look for in leaders their character rather than their charisma because you know, charisma might build something special, but it's built on sand. That thing will crumble in a second. But if it's built on character, it will last. And these are the kinds of leaders Paul is trying to teach the Philippians and us to look for, to look for their character. And this is what I'd call gospel models, the gospel models. And, and, we, and here's specifically why Paul thinks Timothy and Epaphroditus are great models of, of gospel leadership is in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, which is earlier in this passage, he, he teaches us to think differently and act differently. He says, to think and act with humility, think of others as better than yourselves. Think of yourself as a slave and them as your master and serve them. Instead of each person watching out for their own good, watch out for what is better for others. And in, that, in the earlier passage, he says, all the others put their own business ahead of Jesus' business. They're looking for their own interests rather than the interests of others. Timothy is a real godly leader. 
and he follows the pattern of Christ. Jesus left heaven, came to earth, died for his enemies, served them, cared for them, died for them, and then God lifted him up and said, this is the king. This is leadership. He's a servant. And those who want to fall in the way of Jesus and those who want to have godly mentors in their lives, not just charismatic world, you know, people who impress the world but don't impress God, we look for people who live a life of serving and lifting others up. Amen? That's what we look for. That's the example. We go on to the next passage. Um, You know his character and how he labors with me for the gospel like a son works with his father. So he's saying we have a father-son relationship. Paul is saying this model for you is someone I am mentoring. So we need to look for gospel models and realize that our life becomes a gospel model for others, but we also look for gospel mentors. You know, in my life, I've learned that it's not just like one mentor. And when you look at scripture, there's so many mentors you can even read through the scriptures of how to live a life with God. That's what's so rich about the Bible and why it's so important. And in my life, God has given me multiple mentors. People, and a difference between like a mentor and maybe a model is a model might demonstrate a few good things that you can model, but maybe they have some things in their life that, that aren't so good. But there's some aspects of their life that you would take as an example. A mentor is someone that you deeply respect and deep, they deeply love you and have your best interest in mind and you actively walk together. Spiritual mother, spiritual father, spiritual son, spiritual daughter. Does that make sense? And um, in my life, I've had uh, mentors. I've, you know, my friend Ryan Jensmo was my youth pastor growing up. My grandpa, my, um, my dad, a friend named... Um, um, uh, Marlon Minx had a huge impact on me. He's, he wanted, he's an evangelist and he just impressed on me. Marlon, he always emphasized, he said, there's nothing greater you'll do with your life than leading someone to Jesus. It's always stuck with me. That's why we do what we do at Whitewater. My grandpa, he, I, he, he, I guess he used to say this to younger guys who was mentoring. He'd yell at them if they ran across the lawn. He'd say, Real men don't run across the lawn. Use the sidewalk. He'd be like, what a legalistic, mean old guy. But he'd say it with a smile because he was making a point. And uh, one of his, the guys he mentors is now a pastor of a great church down in Arizona, and he teaches his sons that. And because what it means is men of God, women of God, don't take shortcuts. We don't cheat. We, we, we do things honestly with integrity. It was just the way my grandpa communicated it with a smile. My grandpa also taught me, he said, um, uh, the, greatest, uh, the greatest thing you can do with your life is knowing Christ and serving Christ. Knowing Christ and serving Christ. And that's had a huge impact on my life. Those are the kind of mentors I want. My dad, he, one of the things he's always taught me is um, great ideas don't matter if you can't get anything done. I, it's so practical, right? I was like, that's a good idea, dad. <laughs> but we, we, transformation is more important than information. My mom, she'd always, when me and my dad go preach or we're gonna do something, even when I was younger, going to school, my dad was gonna go preach at, at church, she'd always say, you know, do a great job, but make sure you have fun. 
Make sure you enjoy it. Have fun. She was always there to, like, to encourage that in us. Make sure you have joy in what you're doing. Don't just grind it out. Um, I've had so many mentors. My, my friend Ryan, the, the last mentorship moment I'll mention is um, I remember when I was taking over the youth and he was going to become the senior pastor and I was just taking over interim to help with the youth group and, and he, had, he had taught me all, you know, how do you run the programs and how do you deal with parents and how do you deal with this and how do you deal with that? When, how do you deal with uh, discipline stuff when kids, you know, inevitably don't listen to a word you say and he's given me all this, you know, advice but he, he sat me down one day and he said, hey, the most important thing uh, I could teach you and I want you to know is it just love the kids. Just love the kids. He's like, you can get all the other things wrong, and you will, and he's like, and I did, but you gotta love the kids. If you don't love the kids, the kids can smell it a mile away, and uh, you're not gonna be able to connect with them, and they need mentors, and they need to be loved, and, and your, your, your staff, your volunteers, if you don't really love the kids, they're gonna pick up on that, and you'll, the ones that you want to stay to love the kids are gonna leave because you don't love the kids, and the ones that don't love the kids are gonna take your example, and they're not gonna... They're not going to love the kids. You've got to love the kids. Doesn't that sound a lot like what Paul says? Timothy genuinely cares about you. Genuinely cares about you. Gospel mentors. And he says, he labored with me for the, go- for the gospel. And gospel, um, a gospel message. When we have a gospel models and gospel mentors in our life, we begin to experience God in a way that helps us really understand a gospel message. And Paul, who's sitting in chains because he's served the people of Philippi and Corinth and Galatia and you know, all throughout the Roman Empire, he's in chains because he's served them. He's become like Christ for them and he's, got, he's overjoyed that his service could lead to their life and freedom. He has the message of the gospel, the message of Christ. It comes out in everything he does and it's always centered around this servant king, Jesus. Who are the mentors and the models in your life? Who do you look to? And are the mentors and the models leading you toward the servant way or toward the self-serving way to get what you deserve out of life? As a mentor for me once said, it's not about you. The gospel teaches us it's not about us. It's about love. It's about self-giving, sacrificial love. We'll finish this, this passage. He says this, I think it also necessary to send Epaphroditus to you. Um, he is my brother, my co-worker, my fellow soldier. I'm his mentor. He also, he, Paul's saying he's my co-worker, my brother. I learned from him. And he is your representative who serves my needs. He misses you all and he was upset because you heard he was sick. In fact, he was so sick that he nearly died, but God had mercy on him and not just on him, but also on me because his death would have caused me great sorrow. Isn't it interesting? Paul, for the whole first half of, the, of Philippians, the whole back half of Philippians is like, and everything rejoice and everything be glad and every prayer you have rejoice and have joy in your life. And if something terrible happens to you, have joy in these chains that I have, they bring me joy. And it can almost sound like that as someone who's just like lost touch with reality or they're annoying and like this this is everything he's saying is annoying do they have a grasp of reality and here you can see that Paul understands what hope really is hope is not 
Everything is good. Everything is great. Nothing's bad. But dude, your house is on fire. No, 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 everything's good. Everything's great. Nothing's bad. You know, you're going through a terrible divorce and you seem super depressed. No, 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 everything's good. Everything's great. Nothing's bad. You lost your foot. The doctors had to take it off. Everything's good. Nothing's bad. Nothing's bad. No, that's not an acknowledging of reality. And, and Paul says he would have had deep sorrow. And he, he's, Paul is sitting in a prison. He doesn't want to be in, in chains that are holding him down. He doesn't want to be in keeping him from doing the life and the love and the passion of ministry that he's born for. And he's not able to do any of it. And it's not like he's not aware of that emotionally. He hates that, but he considers it all good because the gospel frames that a God who came and died on a cross and looked like a criminal and looked like a, a cosmic loser is the one who actually won and God raised him to life because that God served a humanity who needed yet hated him. That's Paul's gospel. That's his Lord. And so I wanna encourage you today to understand hope the way Paul did. Hope is it's not good right now, but I believe it will get better. It's not good, it's not better right now, but I, I believe it will get better. I believe that God will work through this, that God will use this, that there is a resurrection coming when there's a death, amen? I want you to, this week, be thinking, who are the models of Christ in your life? Who are the people that you're following in your life? Who are your spiritual mothers and fathers? Who are you mentoring with your life? And you are called to mentor others with your life. Um, and Paul's in verse 28, he's sending Epaphroditus. He says, I'm sending him immediately so that you can see him again and be glad and I won't worry and so welcome him in the Lord with great joy and show great respect for people like him because he's a servant. He risked his life and almost died for the work of Christ and he did this to make it up, um, to make up for the help that you couldn't give me. You couldn't be here. He is here. Honor him, love him. He's a model, he's an example. And for some people who are like at that stage in life, they're like, I don't really wanna be an example. I, I don't believe it, like that's, that's a pressure that's unhelpful and you know, I'm gonna fail and you, you know what Paul would say to that? Grow up, you are an example. Something is shining from your life. Something is reflecting off of your life. And whether you like it or not, you are. Now, the relief side is God does not ask him for a perfect example or model. He's asking for a growing one. Someone who's willing to grow and learn. None of us are perfect. But like, it'd be like me saying, you know what, Sarah, I don't feel like being an example for our kids today. I'm an example whether I like it or not. George, did you know that you left all those wrappers out and there's three cups on the table, all half drunk from... You know, the, I, I always like the, I use lacrosse and I forget that I have a few already out. She's like, you are setting a terrible example for our kids. And Wes copies everything I do. He copies everything his sister does. He copies everything his mom. Wes, our little two and a half year old, is, he copies and imitates. That's how he learns. That's how we learn. We don't realize it. But we are imitators. We learn from other people. What we see, we learn to do. And what, is, what are we reflecting? What are we modeling for others? It's an important question. And who are we learning from? My son, when my wife leaves, I, I, I try to use that to my advantage sometimes. So when my wife is leaving, 
a house, there's, uh, the side of our house has these big windows. As she drives away, I'll jump in front of the window and I'll flex so that Wes will flex and he'll go, and he'll go, you know, he'll copy me and then we'll dance for, I won't show you the dance, but we dance for her as she's leaving. And if she does look, she'll look up and have this like, ugh, horribly embarrassed. But I'm so proud in that moment because that dance is telling mom as she's leaving, we love you. We might not be perfect, but we love you. (laughs) This week, be looking for your models, your mentors, and who are you modeling and mentoring in the gospel? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you so much. We are so imperfect and we fall down so many times, but God, I thank you that grace is about an empowering relationship with you. It's about learning how to become a servant, a person filled with love, a person that is filled with forgiveness and reconciliation like you are. God, I pray that our church would be filled with mothers and fathers spiritually, filled with examples, filled with brothers and sisters who are helping each other, doing the best they can, falling forward, this mixed salad of a church. Lord, we we ask that in your name. Amen.